I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, Ian Williams, the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs UN correspondent and author of Untold, the real story of the United Nations in peace and war, joins us to discuss the long-standing hostilities between the United Nations and the State of Israel. Additionally, you'll hear us discuss APAC and pro-Israel lobby efforts, militant Zionist paramilitary groups in the 20th century, international law, conflicts between the U.S. State Department and Israel, Christian Evangelical Support for Israel, and much, much more. This, of course, is a continuation of our series on Israel-Palestine, the bombing of Gaza, and related issues. So, with all that being said, let's get right to it with Ian Williams. Welcome to Parallax News, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with. Uh, He is the U.N. correspondent for the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, uh, and he's worked a number of places over the years, done a lot of journalism. He has a book called Untold, which is about the history of the U.N. Ian Williams, how are you doing? Sort of. Pleasant day, sunshine, cold, and terrible things happening all over the world. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking what's been happening over the past month. One of the reasons I reached out to you was you had an article in the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs uh, from November 6th. UN leaders speak out against siege in Gaza. 
Uh, could you talk just a little bit about what has transpired uh, between the UN and Antonio Gwen- Guterres since the October 7th Hamas attack and then the subsequent uh, Israeli bombardment of Gaza? Well, you know, a lot of us have been uh, somewhat pleasantly surprised by Guterres uh, because he has uh, been traditionally uh, a sort of no waves and uh, don't push too hard on Israel. I mean, no UN um, Secretary General can avoid criticizing Israel because, well, for a start, Israel criticizes them and their institutions so much and one of the messages that comes across clearly is the more slack they give to Israel, the more Israel will try to take. So all the recent secretary generals that I have known have uh, had an open door for the Israeli ambassador and Israeli foreign ministers. And almost no Israeli politician coming to New York avoids going to the UN headquarters. It's part of their campaign trail. And they can introduce donors there and say, look, this is the Secretary General, watch how easy it is. Um, But then they go out and excoriate the UN. And what the UN is restating its own positions. Uh, So what Guterres did, he had no option. Everything that the US, that the Israel is doing in Gaza, almost everything that Israel is doing in Gaza is against international law. So he quite correctly in terms of international international law condemned Hamas for what it did on uh, on um, December on, on on November the 7th as uh, sorry October the 17th doesn't time fly um he excoriated them because they broke the rules of law you know you don't shoot civilians unless you can avoid it he also did sort of hint that maybe Israel sometimes shoots civilians as well. <clears throat> um, but Israel always covers its tracks. Israel has teams of international lawyers who are, are very on the ball about these things. They know exactly what they can get away with. They know when they've done wrong. They know when they have to cover it up. And they've done that right from the beginning. I mean, the Goldstone report was a case in point. I think what they're really scared of, for example, was the fi- was the ICC and um, the finding of the various commissions that Israel practices apartheid because this creation's obligations uh, under international law for the US and others. It's because it's they say not only is apartheid wrong, but states have a duty to combat apartheid. Uh, it was the same with genocide. That's why they're always very, very leery about any accusations of genocide, because it creates legal obligations on others to intervene, which is, of course, Israel's worst nightmare. But the only one they need to worry about is, of course, the United States. And uh, this goes almost to the beginning. I mean, there've been, you know, the, the, the UN has been intimately involved. It was the original creator of Israel, in the sense it was a UN resolution in the General Assembly that created, that uh, mandated partition and created the state of Israel. I believe there was, uh, even going back to 1948, there were 
issues between, well, there was the assassination, right? Of Count Bernadotte. Yeah, what was that all about? Well, it's a pattern which they don't like to know. Uh, Bernadotte was a humanitarian who was negotiate on the verge of negotiating a peace treaty while the Zionist forces were still advancing. They didn't want a peace treaty, so they shot him. You might remember this is a long tradition because before that, which they don't like to remind you now, um, they actually shot Lord Morn, who was Churchill's... Uh, Viceroy in the Middle East for conducting the war against the Nazis while the war with the Germans was on. They assassinated the British head guy in the Middle East. So, you know, there are the, the, no, no slouch on the assassination front. Yeah, but I was going to say of, that was committed. The the UN, the kill, the assassination of the UN official um, was done by uh, the Stern gang, right? Yeah, which later on, I mean, they, they, they joined the IDF. And the, and they became prime ministers and uh, foreign ministers of Israel. Um, the, 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 there's a long tradition, uh, but we dare not call them terrorists. <clears throat> These guys were on a wanted list in Britain. When Menachem Begin came to visit London, they had wanted posters out for him because he'd been assassinating British army personnel uh, before then and, and booby-trapping their corpse. I mean, it's very sordid, are they? If, if ever you've been involved in a divorce, your lawyer will tell you, watch out for what the other side's accusing you of, because that's what they're doing. And this is precisely the case here, is that they're continually making accusations against the Palestinians and Hamas and others of things that they're doing themselves. If you could, what do you make of what's been happening with um, Israel's ambassador to the United Nations uh, Gilad Erdan and his uh, really strange, in my view, displays where he's wearing the the yellow star now to the UN headquarters and going on TV saying there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza, uh, saying that the United Nations is uh, part of Hamas. Um, it's very strange stuff. It's very strange stuff, but it's calculated. Most of the ambassadors that come here are looking for a career in domestic Israeli politics. So their posture isn't to influence other diplomats so much because they don't influence them very much. Most of the diplomats know exactly who they are and what they're doing and shrug their shoulders. But, I mean, the Israeli ambassador to the UN has a big advantage is that other people see them as a sort of hotline through to the White House and the State Department. <clears throat> you want something from the US, you go to Israel and you do what the Israelis want, which is significant that uh, many of the countries that vote for the uh, that vote for Israel in this week's resolution, for example, on the settlements, uh, completely, when I say completely, I mean completely dependent on the US for budget support all those Pacific islands, the Pacific Trust, Trust Territories, that the, they are not only treaty-bound to consult with the US on foreign policy affairs, but they actually get their budget as part of the US con congressional allocation. So, you know, there's no argument which side they were on. Um, and they always, they, they tend to be the ones that will vote for Israel every time. So I don't know if you can talk about the... Um 
the issue that Israel has had over the years with the UN special rapporteurs on the occupied territories. I've interviewed uh, Richard Falk, John Dugard, uh, Michael Link, and Francesca Albanese, and they've all pretty much had issues uh, when they acted as the special rapporteur on the occupied territories. Well, if they report objectively, they're going to report that Israel is committing breaches of international law and conventions. <laughs> so Israel is going to attack them. So, you know, it's a very well-rehearsed tactic for many years. First of all, you know, you deny the legitimacy of the uh, of the institution and the people. And then secondly, you attack the you you engage in ad hominem attacks on them and accuse them of being biased. You always see the same key words there, a troubling report, biased report, uh, unbalanced. It's always the same words, you know, and uh, it's, it, it, it's, but the fact it's repeated by the media and the US and a few others, uh, you know, the Canadians have been particularly shameful because they used to hold sort of standard UN position, settlements are illegal. In fact, I think their website still says that the settlements are illegal as far as the Canadian government's concerned. But then they vote against every resolution in the United Nations that restates this, which is why Canada, there are consequences, I'm pleased to say, Canada has lost every competition for the Security Council seat ever since it started this uh, we all we will support Israel, right or wrong. It's been a constant pressure, all of, and and it's it's a multifaceted. But in the UN, I mean, it's on every level. They 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 they, they attack individuals. They bring people in. They bring the ADL and Brian Brith in to meet the Secretary General. They they'll bring a sort of busloads of rabbis and community leaders to uh, lobby. UN officials, because they're here in New York, it's easy. And um, it does have some effect, but not much, because in the end, all these guys go back to the lawyers and they tell them, or, you know, all the diff other ambassadors, and they're told, you know, sorry, what Israel's doing is illegal and it's wrong. And, you know, it, they, they squirm to get around that. So Guterres, to begin with, was equivocating on the whole issue. But in the end, he comes around. I mean, Kofi Annan was the most pro-Israeli secretary general we'd ever had. And even he got so exasperated with them because people like your ambassador Erdan that we just mentioned, I mean, these are offensive. They come in expecting that they're running this show. They wonder why the secretary general of the United Nations isn't jumping up and down for some pipsqueak liquid apparatchik who's landed up in New York, you know, you know, but, but I've told you this is what I want, and how dare you? And the other part of this, of course, is the Secretary General takes the blame, but it's the General Assembly that makes the votes. The General Assembly, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, almost 200 delegates. They vote and decide what happens uh, in the teeth of heavy pressure from, the, from Israel and the US sometimes. But in the end, on bedrock issues like the settlement, there is no argument that it's illegal. I don't believe the US has ever made an argument differently. They've just decided it's you know convenient to ignore it for the time being, and go uh, uh, and vote against because, hey, you know, 
never mind the law, there are congressmen in New York and uh, senators in New York and uh, right across the United States who will vote against my budget if I go. So I was going to ask, what do you make of the sort of spectacle that's been being made by Erdogan? I mean, it's really surreal seeing, um, you know, Erdogan in in the UN headquarters saying uh, the UN is part of Hamas. Um, it's it's very it, it feels like I'm watching a pro wrestling promo or pro wrestling match. But it's like, uh, I mean, everybody said the same thing about Donald Trump. He got away with it. People believed what he said. And I had done, people believe what he says. You know, I've been uh, a few Facebook posts. I've had trolls coming out my ears. Because if you say anything about Israel, then they're going to come piling in. And it's a never-never land out there. You know, I mean, I don't know if you notice, we're talking serious mythology. Facebook is filled with maps from the biblical times. The Empire of Solomon and David. They even have uh, designations of where the Amalekites used to live. They never have footnotes explaining what happened to the Amalekites, of course, even though Netanyahu basically tried to explain to them last week that uh, every last one of them, including their maids and maidservants, asses and donkeys, were all put to the sword um, as part of the civilizing mission. It's uh, It's willful suspension of disbelief. They're willing to believe two different things before breakfast, and they don't care about other people. They are so diehard. Um, it's like the MAGA crowd. Um, they, they, they've, they really cannot see anything that's wrong with what Israel does, ever. And Erdan is exploiting that. Yes, on the one level, he seems extremely stupid, but so did Trump. And who made president of the United States? Netanyahu used to be UN ambassador, remember? This is where he this is this is where he learned his tricks. He used to be Israel's ambassador to the UN. And he was every bit as outrageous. Well, not quite as outrageous. He was a little more sane. But then he had a saner audience in those days. Erdan can get away with it because it's, <laughs> he's he's playing to a gallery filled with lunatics. So you mentioned you you use that term Likud apparatchik. If I have listeners that don't know about the Likud, uh, what is the Likud party? It's it's obviously the party headed up by Netanyahu right now. But what is it about the Likud that makes them such a um, I, I guess problem in a lot of ways? Because I think even sort of um, you know centrist voices in the U.S. now are sort of talking more and more about the problems of the Netanyahu led. Likud party. I was just watching the the comedian John Oliver uh, talk about it on his show. So it, it seems like it's getting more coverage lately. Well, I mean, this goes back to the whole history of Israel and the foundation. You know, the state of Israel, as people used to know and quote unquote love it, uh, until way into the into the seventies, was run by the Israeli Labour Party, which was tied in vaguely to the Third World had pro-UN aspirations, vaguely West European socialist style. They had connections with all these capitals. Um, you know, I tend to think on false pretenses. It didn't stop them waging war on Egypt several times. But when Likud 
which was the right-wing party took over, Likud's ancestors were the people who shot Count Bernadotte. They were the people who shot Lord Moynihan, the British ambassador there. They were I, the I was going to say, not to interrupt you, I was going to say, I think um, Yitzhak Shamir, who was one of the Likud prime ministers, uh, was part of the uh, Lehe, the, the paramilitary organization. Yeah. Yeah, he was a wanted terrorist, as far as the British were concerned. Him, he, and Menachem Begin, and you know when they came along, and these are the wonderful people who gave you Sabra and Shatila. At the time, by the way, they gave you Yassin because they were an extreme faction even within the Israeli um, forces. So you know they, they, they've been well practiced in in massacres, and look. Albert Einstein said no one should have anything to do with these people because they're Nazis. Einstein wouldn't go anywhere near these people. He said this on the record several times, that they, that, that, that they were out-and-out Nazis, that their whole um, ethos was of a racism, racism and nationalism. And now they're in control of the country. And they're basking in the, the afterglow of the old Labour Party reputation, which should be long gone by now, but it, it's still there. People still have this idea of kibbutzes and nice social, uh, you know, inclusiveness. When in fact, it's, it's they've done what Nazis do, and they take over a place. They institute racial laws, and they and 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 they enforce them, which is why most people apart from editorial writers in New York, will now say that what happens in Israel is apartheid. I was going to say, so So is the, within the grand scheme of things, uh, has the Likud party been worse than the older sort of labor party at the center of the foundation of Israel? And, and how has this right-wing creep happened in Israel? Well, part of it is... Um, you know, if you're going to be cynical, you could say that the Labour Party at least knew that they had to make nice to the world. They had to put up appearances. Likud didn't bother. And also, because of the nature of the coalition politics and proportional representation in Israel, it means that any deranged rabbi or militia leader that gets more than 5% in Parliament is in there to negotiate. And they do. So... You know, it's almost like American politics with senators. They hold the country to ransom. So you have the orthodox parties are holding the country to ransom to make sure that their schools and their villages get, um, the, get the tax money and that their people are exempt uh, from military conscription. Uh, so, you know, it, it's for the could to stay in power, it has to assemble these coalitions. Even when Labour's been in power recently, it had to pander to some of these coalitions and get them in. So it has to give them something. You know, it, it, it has to say, well, OK, we'll, we won't alter the rules that say that uh, conversions by non-Orthodox rabbis are relevant for Israeli citizenship. I mean, a lot of what they get through is a complete insult to the diaspora Jews, you know, who tend to be fairly liberal. Very liberal, in fact, you know, the, the source of more liberal than most Americans. 
and yet you'd never get from uh, from from the behavior of uh, the people in Israel who invoke them all the time. In that regard, you know, I've had discussions with um, Jewish Americans, so I would say uh, would, would describe themselves as uh, liberal Zionists. And one of the things I hear from them is that, you know, this is this is going to be the the last we see of Netanyahu. After this war is over, Netanyahu's out. The, the Likud party is is kaput. You know, um, their their influence will be greatly diminished, and, and someone like Benny Gantz will come in. And you know, Benny Gantz they say is much more of a centrist figure. Uh, but I know in 2022, uh, Benny Gantz at the Munich Security Council said. There will be no Palestinian state. Uh, I think he said there will be a Palestinian entity. Um, I'm not sure that things will just magically get better if the Likud's influence is diminished. And I'm not sure that right-wing influence in Israel will be diminished uh, fully, especially after the events of October 7th. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I I think the right-wing influence will be strengthened. Um, Netanyahu is going to take a personal fall for the lack of preparedness, for letting Hamas across the border, uh, for complete, well, you know, well, let, uh, he, it was maladministration. He failed in the basic duty of the IDF to keep the Palestinians down. Uh, it was on his watch. He's going to pay for that. But Likud won't, because the whole apparatus is there, and it's based upon vindictiveness. And what Hamas has done has given them on a plate the idea that Palestinians are evil and must be put down. Now, some wise people say, well, maybe this has something to do with the way we were treating them beforehand. But most people aren't feeling like that. I mean, you know, after the Vietnam War, you didn't get people saying, oh, we must go and take lots of aid to the Vietnamese for all that we've done to them. I think the other thing that I always hear is that, you know, the the most far right parties in Israel, um, people will say they're 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 a minority. You know, these figures like uh, Itamar Ben Giver and Bezalel Smotrich uh, are the fringe. Um, what do you say to people that 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 make that argument? A fringe that's allowed to go in and shoot up civilians in the uh, alleged capital of the country is not a fringe. These people are the uh, the tails that wag the dog. When the settlers go in there, they're like brown shirts in Germany. They can perform unspeakable things without being responsible to the rest of Israeli society, but they get full backing of the police, the courts, and the IDF. The first response after Gaza was that they, I think they sent, was it 4,000 rifles to the settlers? This was, oh, there's a fire. Let's rush a tanker full of uh, gasoline to the people who started it. It's, I mean, it is an instinctive response that they always get the better of. All of this time, you'd have thought a sensible Israeli government would have said, let's keep the lid on in the West Bank, which means restraining the settlers, calling the dogs up. What have they done? They've given them carte blanche. So, you know, go burn a few villages, go go tear up the wells, go burn down the olive groves, go make the desert red. What motivates these settlers? Because I know 
a lot of people have asked me uh, that are new to these issues, they'll say, what is motivating this settler movement? Why are they going into the West Bank? Why are they attacking these villages, these Palestinian villages? How would you explain it to people? Uh, like, what's the brief summary? Fear, racial vindictiveness. They have a guilty conscience. They know the Palestinians were there first. And as long as there's any Palestinians around, then they have a residual conscience about it. Ariel Sharon was the same. He went all the way to Beirut to try and expunge the Palestinians from the national consciousness. And when they see these villages, if you go to the West Bank and you see Israeli settlements built next to centuries-old you know, Arab houses, uh, it, it's the effort at historical oblivion uh, memoricide, I believe one Israeli scholar called it. I, I remember, I mean, what, 40 years ago now, I was in uh, Beersheba in the Negev. They had a museum in the town centre. And in it was a time chart of the various historical periods. And it went up through the uh, period, and then it had the Yeshuv period, which was when, you know, most Jews were allegedly out of the country and in the diaspora. You know what it didn't mention? The museum was a conquered mosque that was converted into a museum. That did not exist on the Israeli government time chart, which I thought was, you know, interesting quirk. Whether it was somebody sitting there as a conscious decision or just, you know, a slip of the mind that 1,300 years of history got overlooked, I don't know. But that's the way they want it. So, you know, and but people believe two impossible things before breakfast. So a lot of these uh, diehard, you know, the houses they really want in Jerusalem, they call them Arab houses because they're historical, it's nicely built out of Jerusalem stone. They're not the concrete uh, monstrosities looking like council projects strewn across the West Bank. They want the Arab houses. It's it's um it it's people do this all of us. I mean, we're sitting here on Indian territory, and we tend to overlook it. You know, I'm sitting in Manhattan, named after an Indian name. Uh, we we tend not to think about it quite enough. Well, what that's what they want to do. They want to make sure there's no trace left to worry their conscience, or more to the point, to give them any excuse to come back. I was going to say, you mentioned Ariel Sharon in Beirut. He was known as, I mean, he had that, that nickname, the Butcher of Beirut. Yes. And, you know, he was consistent about it. And he was censured for the uh, massacre in Sabrin Shatila and got away with it. But was welcomed in the chancelleries of the world and the White House and the Congress as a revered, um, uh, as a revered statesman. But we can't talk to Hamas. And we couldn't talk to uh, we couldn't talk to Yasser Arafat for all those years, until he turned up on the White House lawn. So we create non-persons who are not allowed to talk to, until they agree with what we want. In which case, suddenly we're allowed to talk to them. I mean, this is not just the Israelis. The British did the same with the IRA, um, <laughs> with Jerry Adams, for example, who is now a revered statesman in Northern Ireland. 
But that was not quite the way he was looked at when I first came here 30 years ago. <laughs> what has your experience been speaking with? You said you've spoken with a number of UN secretary generals. What has your experience speaking with them been like? Well, they have a dual responsibility. Look, they have a responsibility for the rule of law and the UN Charter, which is there. But they're also saddled with obligations. I mean, it was the General Assembly which voted through the partition plan. And it's been successive UN bodies, the General the Secretary, the Security Council has refused to do anything about it in a serious way. They've passed resolutions. But as long as you have veto holders like the US will veto any action taken, even a slap on the wrist by the UN, then there's very little that the Secretary General can do because one of the things the Secretary General responsible for the United Nations has to accept is that the United States is essential to the success of the UN. So, you know, one part of the game has been we must keep the US on board regardless, which is where the veto came in because we had to keep the US on board regardless and Russia, of course. But, you know, without them, they all remembered what happened to the League of Nations. So the veto was the price that was paid for all of these. But nobody anticipated that the veto would become a proxy veto for a barbaric zealot state on the east of the Mediterranean. They thought it would be the United States, which would have some rational idea. But, I mean, in the last, it's it wasn't always thus. The U.S. did vote against Israel. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower actually put sanctions against Israel until it got out of Suez, and the British stopped. Um, uh, British and French got pulled their troops from from the from Sinai and the Suez Canal. That was the last time. Uh, they also sort of they also condemned Israel for attacks up in the north in Galilee uh, by like Lake Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee because they were quite clear who was aggressing who. Now, I mean, the facts don't matter. They will always vote for Israel. That's quite clear. And it's also, it, it's interesting to know, just aside, because um, you might have noticed from my accent, Margaret Thatcher was very strong. Under her, the British delegation always voted with all of these resolutions. Even when the US vetoed, the British would at most abstain usually vote along with everybody else, in fact, on issues of principle like the settlements and aggression and clear matters of international law. It was only later on with um, Tony Blair that the US, the UK started abstaining when America actually vetoed something. And since then, they've slipped a little more. They, they hover between joining in the veto and uh, abstaining uh, because they're shamefaced. They depend on the U.S. on one level, but they don't have any, uh, it, you know, so, but they don't have the courage of their convictions about international law. Although their diplomats will tell you that they know what the U.S. is doing, that they what Israel is doing is completely unconscionable. So you've indicated there that the U.S., uh, with regards to how it votes on issues related to uh, Israel and the U.N., that that has changed over the years, uh, what's the cause of that? Is it a matter of 
the sort of network of um, what I would call the pro-Israel affinity groups or lobbying groups. I guess the Israel lobby, which would include things like the Zionist Organization of America and perhaps most famously APAC. Well, yes, they're very potent part of it. It's, uh, I mean, the State Department was making rational calculations after 67 and 73. Who do we want on our side? The Egyptians had gone to the Russians. So, you know, my enemy's enemy is uh, is my friend. And that pushed, uh, that pushed the U.S. politicians over the brink. But people in the State Department have always been a lot more uh, measured about this. But then, you know, things got... It's it's they've consolidated control for a long period. I mean, when I first came here, they were they were engaged in a, basically a purge. Anybody in the State Department who spoke Arabic was being was being it was being made plain that their career prospects were severely limited. Well, yeah, there's a whole sort of um, you know, I always hear the line that oh, that is just Arabist propaganda. Whenever there's criticism of Israel or groups like APAC. That's it. I mean, anybody who actually understood the area, knew what it was about, was called an Arabist. I mean, it's not Arab, of course, we can tell the difference. But uh, according to the stories, uh, while the US was giving full faith and credit to the Shah of Iran, and the diplomats were writing reports back saying how popular he was, or this, you know, the on, on the road from the airport to Tehran, death to the Shah was written on every curbside. But but none of the diplomats could actually read Farsi, so they didn't see it. And uh, it, it's it's similar. The level of ignorance uh, was very you know was very palpable. Uh, and you know the as for the Israelis, they they speak English often better than Americans, <laughs> the leaders anyway. And uh, you know the Netanyahu, he was he was a fluent Long Island politician. He spoke rapidly, you know. He he knew he knew the buzzwords. He got there, and uh, Abba Eban spoke flawless patrician English. He was the first Israeli ambassador, and you know he was uh, he was a good orator. He was he was entirely convincing. Just a few more questions here. So, with regards to international law, how should we be looking at? What happened on October 7th, because I, I think, you know, those civilian casualties are horrifying. But then I, I also think anyone who's saying the Israeli bombardment isn't horrific is out of their mind, because, I mean, we're talking about the, you know, collective punishment of an entire people that have been described as living in, in an open air prison. Almost everyone in the world describes it in exactly the same way. I mean, it's squeezing it to talk about proportionate response, but it's quite clear this is a disproportionate response. And also there's this element of um, human shields. It's it's a bit like, uh, you know, the, the Russian, any time Ukraine was mentioned, the Russian chorus would say Azov Brigade, Azov Brigade, without producing any evidence. So now they say the same, human shields. If you're living in Gaza, then how do you avoid being a human shield? If you're living in Tel Aviv and the liquid cabinet and officers are there, why is it not a human shield 
Why, you know, if if you bomb Tel Aviv to get at those people, does that make them human shields? No, it's absurd. But you're allowed to say things about some people, but not about others. And, you know, th this is precisely the point. They've been so successful at dehumanizing the Palestinians, at depriving them of human agency. It goes back to Golda Meir, who says there's no such thing as the Palestinian people. I think she also called them cockroaches. I, I was gonna I was gonna say too, there was that horrible, terrible, just ugly, nasty book that came out in the 1980s, I believe, uh, from Time Immemorial, uh, the Joan Peters book that basically said, oh, they're all just recent immigrants, those those so-called Palestinians that we we pushed out. Uh, and you know, it wasn't really populated. And you know, it was it's strange because that book, uh, briefly there for a moment, uh, had all this praise heaped upon it in major publications until, you know, people essentially went out and debunked it. Well, no, they're, they're doing it again now, all of those arguments. Look, the, the idea, first of all, you know, um, I, I've got to confess, I'm a born-again atheist. Uh, you know, if Moses brings a title deed, I would want my lawyers to look at it very closely. And th there's actually very little, if any, written evidence of Solomon and David, certainly not of their embassy. So all across the Middle East at the time, there were potentates putting up memorials, Ozymandias onwards, saying, here I am. The Hittites and the Egyptians were setting up boundary, mark boundary markers. And there's no evidence at all, Solomon. But what? Right, well, it doesn't matter. King Arthur used to rule in Britain, and I'm Welsh. King Arthur was Welsh from one point of view. It doesn't mean to say that we can go and throw the, the English out of London. The people who live in a place have got title into it, which is one of the points, by the way, that the river to the sea comes in, is that the PLO charter includes everybody born there. Now, as far as I know. So, you know, everybody born in the you know, the, between the river and the sea, is entitled to citizenship and the rest is negotiable. So the idea that this is, implies ethnic cleansing is there. But history is a different story. The people who are in those refugee camps were born there. And if it's okay to go pursuing ownership of artworks from the 1930s through the courts and retrieving them, then it's got to be at least acceptable for the Palestinians to try to reclaim to reclaim the olive grove that they were forced out of in 1948. But nobody ever puts the two together. Nobody ever fills the equation. It's always a one-sided point, one at a time. Uh, and, you know, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. It's, it's always... Uh, a one-sided prism where the light goes in but never comes out. I was going to say in that regard, it's interesting with the debate over from the river to the sea because, you know, there were Zionists that had a variation on that quote going back to They uh, still Jabotinsky. do. All of the settlers claim it's theirs and not just that, but Jordan as well. Well, well that's what I was going to say. Um, I, I think Jabotinsky's quote was... Uh, there are two banks, and uh, this one is ours, and that one is too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I understand. I think it was Weissman 
uh, went to Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, around the time of the Balfour Declaration. And Lloyd George says, uh, it'll all be yours, Mr. Weissman. Don't worry from Dan to be a Shiva. And apparently Weissman said, we want more than that. <laughs> so, you know, invoking the Bible is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a two-edged sword. Um, and, you know, I actually enjoy reading the King James Bible. It's beautiful poetry. I teach English sometimes, and it's um, it's uh, it's a core document for English literature. It shouldn't be a core document for Middle Eastern history, though. It's an illustration. It's not the real thing. Um, any more than the stories of King Arthur and Robin Hood reflect British constitutional history. One thing I wanted to bring up to you, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I know he was a UN Assistant Secretary General, and I've spoken to him before, but um, I was speaking, I, I think it was a year, maybe two years ago now, to Hans von Sponik. And he, he said to me that one of the issues with the UN, he described it in, in a way that I, I maybe have a little bit trouble wrapping my head around, but he said to me that there's almost like two UNs within the UN. There's the National Security Council, and then there's these uh, other elements of the UN. And, and often the Security Council is at odds. Could you speak to that issue? Yeah, well, the, the people who set up the UN uh, tried to take account of the mistakes of the League of Nations. And you could say the mandate of Palestine was one of those mistakes, but that's another story. And rather than get it into into um paralysis as happened when the UN, when the league of nations tried to take action over the invasion of abyssinia or the invasion of manchuria they they set up a tourist two tier structure one was the general assembly which was intended to make the other countries feel involved and the second was the security council where the big five would keep their fingers on the tiller. And occasionally there's other people pretend that they were drawing as well. You know, it's like a dummy steering wheel you put in the car for the kid. <laughs> so they did that. So the Security Council, it was carefully in there. And this was, by the way, we all blame the Russians now, but it was US insistence on very much on the veto because they wanted to make sure that nothing happened without their agreement. And, you know, it's a common US feeling that there's nothing between Capitol Hill and heaven. And they didn't like the idea of the UN muscling in on this, uh, on, on this hotline. So they, we, we had the Security Council with a veto. It so happened that when in the 60s, the third world got a majority, the US began using the veto up till then the Russians had done it all the time. And it's the veto, which is the problem, it's been the problem in Serbia, it's been the problem in, um, in the Middle East consistently all the way through, um, because all you take is one permanent member to stymie any action, because According to the UN Charter, everybody is supposed to hand their armies over to the UN to take enforcement action. Every week for the last 100, oh no, not 100 years, but 80, 80 years, 
in the bowels of the UN, the military staff joint committee meets. And this is the generals of the leading big five. And they sit there and have a cigarette and a coffee and then go away again. But their job was to mass arms and and uh, navies and, and air forces to, to, to shut down any newcomer that was causing problems. Never happened, of course, with Berlin and the Iron Curtain, etc. So it means the UN has no real means of enforcement unless the great powers agree, and they never have. So if they wanted to, they could go in to Gaza and tell the Israelis, okay, we've had enough of you, buzz off. We're going to put a line of troops on the border. And incidentally, this is this has worked. The most successful peace operation, which has never really gets the consideration it wanted, was the one that was the where a line of UN peacekeepers, US troops, was put on the Macedonian border with Serbia. 600 men, I think it was. And this was a message to Slobodan Milosevic and the Serbs, you touch us and we'll come and squash you. And that message has never really been successfully replicated elsewhere. The threat was real at the time. It was tangible and obviously believable from Milosevic. Um, if you put US troops along the border and said, Israel, you're not coming across here, it would work. But no one's going to do that, ever. In fact, you couldn't even get Congress to mandate the, you know, to, to, to approve it even if the UN asked for it. Is is this an issue of the US preventing the UN from, you know, operating in the way it, it, at its full potential? Always, always. I mean, remember, there's two, there's there, there are different uh, facets here. One was the Israel lobby was very potent, making sure that the US didn't get involved and the UN didn't get involved. Because Israel knew that legally it didn't have a leg to stand on and it didn't have the support in the UN. So the last thing it wanted was UN involvement. And it tried to keep the issue out of the UN completely, wherever possible. But the other issue is uh, because of the pressure from the Israel lobby, the developed, a, how should we say, a complete prejudice against the UN in Congress and elsewhere. You have to remember that in most countries, in Western Europe and the others, the Jews are very liberal. They're internationalist. They know what happens if uh, you, you don't enforce international regulations. So they support the United Nations. And that was the way it used to be here. But when the Israel lobby started, it meant that support for the UN was eroded. All across the country is pro-Israeli organizations spent a lot of their time denigrating the UN and pulling it down. And they threatened to withdraw funding if the UN didn't stop supporting Palestinian refugees. We'll cut your funding. First of all, it would be the funding for the refugees, but soon it became funding for everything. UNESCO, it was funding for UNICEF. We will stop any funding anytime because we don't like what you're saying about Israel. And, you know, no other country does that, by the way. Every other country accepts you're part of a club and a collective. So when you make a decision, 
you're bound by it. Only the US says, well, we agree with everything the UN does or says, except when we disagree with it, in which case we'll have no part of it. And that's very much down to the EU, uh, Israel lobby, which has completely hamstrung the UN over the years uh, and, and continues to do so. In, in that regard, has has the Israel lobby worked in concert with, I mean, I think it's very well known that the American right wing, the GOP, even its more moderate elements in the past, has always been skeptical of the UN. And then, you know, farther to the right of the GOP, there's, you know, always been an anti-UN uh, sentiment amongst the American right wing. Uh, is there a sort of coalescence between uh, the pro-Israel lobby elements and the American right when it comes to attacking the United Nations? It's more than a coalescence. It's an essential identity now. I mean, this was the uh, this was the John Birch Society and the others. They they were you know they were ideologically opposed to the UN as an internationalist body, uh, claiming supernatural powers. And on this occasion, they're a hundred percent on. And remember that you know we we always have to be very careful. None of us, neither of us, have made the mistake. I'm pleased to say, there isn't a Jewish lobby. There is an Israel lobby. Most American Jews are totally in support of the United Nations and international law. In fact, far more so than the American public in general, and especially the American white voters who are now completely in support of Israel. The real coalescence now is between the evangelical Christian Zionists and the Israel lobby. And the irony here is, of course, the evangelical Zionists are, how should we say, they're actually bona fide anti-Semites. They believe the purpose of history is to gather the Jews into the Holy Land, start Armageddon, and convert the remnants to Christianity. This is not philo-Semitism by any means. This is not being pro-Jewish. This is a this is pro being pro the end of the world, and that's openly what they say. They've been consistently anti-Semitic, and they're busy, very happy, accusing other people. They don't give a damn about the Israelis as such. They they are there to fulfil an to fulfil an eschatological promise, the book of book of Revelations. The Jews will be gathered in there. We'll have armor garden. We'll have a. Uh, we'll have fire and brimstone, and uh, the Antichrist comes. If I don't know, I, I read this stuff because I have to. But if you look at the Left Behind series, the um, the Antichrist is usually the UN Secretary General. <laughs> they have it sorted out. What needs to change uh, with regards to? Uh, the UN, the US-Israel relationship, uh, what will it take for a peace to be obtained? And also, I wanted to ask you, uh, because it, it just entered my head, I feel as if the elephant in the room is that I don't think any of this has made Israelis safer. You know, I, I think in a lot of ways, no. this has all been very bad for Israel. As I always tell people on issues like this, 
friends tell you when you're driving off the edge of the cliff. So don't give you a push. And this is what the US has been doing. You know, that right at the beginning, there was, I mean, Biden was saying, nudge, nudge. Really, is this a clever thing to do? He should have said, now stop. You're being silly. Stop now. We're not going to pay for it anymore. And Biden was in his power to do that. He could say, okay, we're stopping the weapons going. We're stopping the checks going. You build one more settlement and the deal's off. When you say the nudge, nudge, you mean, I, I know both Blinken and Biden uh, at the beginning of this sort of said, hey, be very careful. Do not react the way we did with 9-11. This could become a quagmire. But it was very, um, how shall I say it, tepid, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a bit like letting your pet bulls loose in the playground and saying, now be a good boy. It doesn't work. They knew it wouldn't work. You really need a very strong choke leash with barbed wire around the throat before it's going to work. They dealt with Netanyahu. They know who he is. They know what he is. They've dealt with the people around him. They know who they are and what they are. I was going to say that's one of these people. Yeah, sorry. Not to interrupt you, but um, that that's one interesting thing I've noticed. I'm not sure that there has been a single U.S. president that has dealt with Netanyahu, other than maybe George W. Bush, that seemed to come away from the experience being a big fan of, you know, in, in the sense of I, you know, H. W. Bush, I I don't think was um, uh, you know, a fan of him. I don't think Clinton was. None of them were a him. fan of him. All Obama, them, yeah. All of them have expressed privately, as far as I know from reading the memoirs and talking to the people, all of them detest him. He's a popinjay, a bully, a would-be, and they want to smack him down. But they can smack him down, but there's a Senate behind him who's going to smack them down. Their whole agenda goes out the window. And they're quite prepared to do it. We've seen this. You know, if if, if Obama had said, uh, okay, I'm going to restrain you and stop money for settlements, then the Senate would have been quite, a lot of the Senate would have gone along with saying, okay, then all your money for social welfare programs are out. All your civil rights programs are out. All your budget, you know, it's out. We want it. Because these are single issue zealots. They don't care about anybody or anything else. And in the particular case of the Senate, what they're concerned about is getting re-elected. And there is empirical evidence that uh, standing against Israel is not good for re-election prospects, not because of the voters. Bob Dole stood against them. And they, they, they drew back immediately. He, you know, uh, on, on the issue of, uh, of these original settlements, and the loan guarantees, he and Bush said, no, we're not going to do it. And they they lobbied and they took everybody down there and they were still there afterwards. But Bush didn't get re-elected. There was an incessant campaign against him. Not because of Iraq, simply because of this. It, was the, it wasn't mentioned. It was, as you say, it was the elephants in the rooms trampling over everything. I mean... Bush didn't, uh, Bob Dole didn't care in Kansas. You know, they, 
the, 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 I don't think there was a minion in the whole state. If APAC had gone to his Kansas constituents and said, you know, he, he's voting against money for Israel. And, what? We're giving money to Israel? Dead right he is. <laughs> Why well, he should come to our farmers? That's what they'd have said. I was going to say, you know, I, I just saw an ad by APAC that said more than 95% of APAC-backed candidates won their election, you know, with an exclamation mark. So. Yeah, but also they accuse you of anti-Semitic. I'm quoted, I think it's in what's Christopher Hitchens' book, is that uh, APAC is the only lobby that calls you anti-Semitic if you quote their own website about how successful they are. And they do. <laughs> you you also mentioned, by the way, what was the issue with Kofi Annan? Because you, you said that he was relatively pro-Israel, but he had issues too. He was, you know, kind of overwhelmed by uh, the pro-Israel elements. He was. Uh, look, Kofi Annan was a nice guy. He was a genuine humanitarian. He had a genuine vision. And he was brought up in the old, you know, really West European, liberal American tradition that Golden Meir and the Israelis were nice, cozy people. And he made, went out of his way to ensure that Israel got uh, representation in the UN and brought them in. Uh, but in the end, he was brought down over Iraq, which was tangential to this. I mean, the, uh, the far right Likudniks uh, in the Wall Street Journal and William Sapphire and the others, they never forgave him for admitting that the Iraq war was illegal. It was under duress. It was a BBC reporter shoved a microphone up his nostril and twisted it until he basically had to admit that the Iraq war was illegal under the UN terms. They never forgave him. And they invented the Oil for Food program. Do you remember the Oil for Food program? Yes. Nobody else does. It was the greatest financial scandal in the history of the world. It was a complete concoction. It was a huge smoke pile from a few smoldering embers conjured up by the Wall Street Journal editorial board and the ilk. And it was because Kofi didn't obey instructions about Iraq. They never forgave him. And also because he did occasionally say to the Israelis, no, you can't do that. It's against the law. I, I do. You know, it's funny. I remember the food for oil scandal because I, I remember it was something that um George Galloway brought up when he went to DC and, and testified to Congress. <laughs> George Galloway for other reasons is not my favorite person. I've known him for a long time. But I just I just want to put that caveat in in case our names are associated. But he was right on this. The oil for food scandal basically I did a lot of work on that afterwards. And there was an oil for food scandal. And it was the fact that the U.S. took all of the money that was in escrow for the Iraqis and gave it out with absolutely no accountancy controls. There is many a rich mansion around Virginia and Alexandria built with oil for food money. But it doesn't say that on it. Not much of it got through to the Iraqis. It was, it was stolen. It was, it was looting, something on the scale of the... Uh, uh, of the COVID funds <laughs> in the modern day. Last two questions I promise to let you go. Uh, first, I know a lot of people that whenever I have someone on to talk about international law, they'll say to me, that international law stuff is a thing from the 90s. It is filled. You know, they're, the, 
the international law paradigm uh, hasn't been able to achieve anything when it comes to the Israel-Palestine issue, or they'll, they'll try to mention other issues. How would you respond to people that that make that argument? It's I can see why they make it, but it's not true. The Israelis do try, and they're worried about it. That this is why that this is why they're so upset about the apartheid and the BDS. They saw what happened to South Africa. It's in it's on their mind. They saw what happened with Nuremberg. They saw what happened with Milosevic, the former Yugoslavia. They know, and you know, they've been very carefully. They they've built minefields around themselves to protect themselves from universal jurisdiction. So it's okay for the state of Israel to go to Argentina and kidnap somebody. Without, by the way, that was illegal. I'm not going to shed any tears for Adolf Eichmann. You know, it's uh, <laughs> he's not one of the victims I would cry over or demonstrate about. But what the Israelis did there was completely illegal. But what's happening with the ICC would be legal. You know, at one point, uh, Israeli ministers had to check with the. It's it's a good thing they have to check with their with their legal departments as well as their passport departments when they leave the country, because there's such a thing as universal jurisdiction. I mean, I spoke to one State Department official who was telling me how he had to go and rescue Henry Kissinger from the police in Paris because he'd been arrested under universal jurisdiction. Unfortunately, they let him out, so it's a, an imperfect... Um, uh, uh, it, it's an imperfect instrument. But that that's what's coming up. I mean, any time one of these guys sets foot anywhere else in the world, he has to have that haunting fear that someone somewhere has a pair of handcuffs to clip on them. Or her. Let's be non-genderist about this. I was going to say, too, since you mentioned speaking to people in the State Department, I've talked to people that, that have worked in the State Department in the past, and I know there's a faction of people historically in the State Department that have always uh, had issues with Israel, um, so much so that I've seen pro-Israel uh, sort of voices claim that there's a, an anti-Semitic conspiracy in the State Department throughout the 20th century. What has been the issue between the State Department and Israel over the years? Uh, Israel doesn't obey international law. And Israel is a one star. Israel always asks and never gives. As far as the U.S. is concerned, I mean, it's one of my one of the issues I have with Noam Chomsky, who is one of the only people in the world who thinks that Israel is a U.S. satellite. When it's quite clear to everybody else who's the satellite of what, it's a wag the dog scenario. But uh, Chomsky is of the old school and thinks that not a sparrow falls without the CIA having fired a missile at it. And, you know, in, in the case of Israel, it's it's definitely a case of the tail wagging the dog because of the peculiar American political situation. What will it take for things to change, especially with regards to the plight of the Palestinian people? I mean, what's going to have to give at some point? I wish I could be optimistic. I sometimes think it took World War II to reform the United League of Nations into the United Nations. And it will probably take World War Three to reform uh, the UN into an effective organization. And, you know, I mean, everybody's hedged themselves into a corner. 
the options have shrunk all around. Uh, and I really can't see. The U.S. does not have the power and authority, even if it wanted to. Uh, the U.S. government doesn't have the power and authority inside its own government. We can see that all across the world. We can see the elites are making statements in support of Israel and Gaza, and the streets are filled with people who disagree with them. The Abrahamic Accords, the Arab monarchies are all saying Israel is our friend and we can deal with them. The streets are filled with people saying different. I mean, I already knew that because, you know, um, I think any Israeli visitor to Egypt since 19, since the Camp David has realizes that they are not anybody's best friends there. And uh, that's... Uh, that that's deep and it's 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 not anti-Semitic. They remember what happened during those wars. Uh and it it comes across very clearly. So, you know, I think it's um I don't know, World War Three. I really cannot see an end. It would be nice if we had some type of Charles Dickens style where everybody woke up on Christmas morning or Hanukkah and said, oh, yes, let's be nice. Let's go and take a fatted goose to the neighbor. Uh, ain't going to happen. Um, it's possible pressure on the US. How much pressure can you get? You've seen the streets of New York and uh, everywhere else filled with people expressing a view. You've seen the polls that show that a lot of people are very disturbed. And then you see the statements of the political leadership here and in Britain and in France and Germany, where, you know, it's it's almost illegal to express sympathy for the Palestinians. And yet, you know, it's a tribute to democracy that hundreds of thousands of people will turn out on the streets of London and Berlin and Paris and New York and Washington to disagree. But will that momentum be carried on? Will that momentum be carried on into the Congress and the Senate? No, because there's money involved in the Senate. And who controls the money? The Christian evangelicals and APAC. They'll decide who gets in there. As long as people are allowed, prepared to let that go on. Because the dichotomy is, if you have lobby politics, then the ones who win are the ones who have a concentrated approach. You know, I've got I am socialist in my inclinations, so I'm prepared to vote for Jerry Nadler, even though he's been very wobbly over the years on this issue. He's much improved now. I mean, Bernie Sanders was a bit timorous about these issues, but, you know, I would support him despite his timorousness. There are people out there who will never support anybody. And we've seen this in American politics. They would support a little barbarian Austrian with a moustache as long as he pledged that the budget checks would carry on going to Israel. They really would. And it's uh, they don't care about anything else at all. This is single-issue politics. In that regard, do you think that... Um, I, I know we've talked about APAC here, but do you think APAC is part of a, a bigger problem of just money in politics and, you know lobbies buy off our politicians, you know, and I don't think it's just APAC. There's other lobbies too. Do you think it's part of a bigger problem? It's funny. The only time APAC was really defeated was over the sale of the AWACS to Saudi Arabia. 
And that was because they got the military industrial complex and the Arab lobby, a money lobby against them on the other side. So it was a case of my lobby is better than your lobby. <laughs> and they lost the vote on that, what, 30 years ago? That was the last time. Uh, the, the lobbies, you know, the key is that Supreme Court decision that basically let free money into elections. There were some slow attempts that were gradually trying to pin down the role of money that if somebody's running for election, they should declare where the money comes from behind them. Now that's gone, then all holds are off on politics. Until that is reformed, that really is very little hope for the US. Unless, unless you know, we, we've got enough money to tell people that this person is getting money from, you know, from Monsanto, from Israel, from whatever, and their votes should be weighed accordingly. But they keep disguising it. You know, once you get into the PACs, it, it really needs a vigorous um, investigation. And it doesn't get it because most of the media that do the investigating are in control of one or other of these lobbies. Do you think Fox is going to? Unless Rupert Murdoch wakes up in his senility and decides he's an anti-Semite, Fox isn't going to study APAC. Well, I want to thank you again, Ian Williams. You you stayed overtime with me. I appreciate that. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Ah, sorry. Well, um, through the Washington Report, I've been uh, somewhat ill for a couple of years. I'm just coming back now, but I have a. a I, I'm hoping to revive my site, Deadline Pundit Inc., and um, also on the Foreign Press Association uh, website and YouTube channel. It's not so much me, but I have a regular podcast interviewing people like you. And uh, it's not a, an amen chorus. I've had John Bolton and other people on there. <laughs> so uh, we, 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 we cross swords in a very gentle and civilized way. Um, well, a civilized way, uh, not so gentle. Um, so uh, look up YouTube for the Foreign Press Association and just Google me. I get a lot of stuff out there in one way or another. Thank you again, Ian Williams. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found insightful, informative, and educational the conversation with Ian Williams and that you'll check out his work at the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. I believe they have a new digital issue out. Shout out to Delinda Hanley and Dil Spruskansky of the Washington Report. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I cannot urge you enough to join the Patreon page. I need your support to keep this show going. I'm working at a rapid pace to provide coverage on the situation unfolding in the Middle East, and I hope you will support me with a donation on Patreon. Thank you. And with that being said...
until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.